Hello and welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Michael Samanchik and I'm the host for this episode, which is being recorded from the Innocence Network's annual conference 2022 in Phoenix, Arizona. Joining me now, I have Sister Helen Prejean. Sister Helen is world-renowned for her life's work advocating against the death penalty. Among her many accomplishments is writing Dead Man Walking, an eyewitness account of the death penalty in the United States, which was later adapted into an Academy Award-winning movie starring, starring Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn. She still routinely speaks about the death penalty and criminal justice reform. Welcome to the show, Sister Helen. Yeah, thanks, Michael. And keeps accompanying people on death row. The man in Louisiana that I've been accompanying now for 20 years, because I just take one person and follow him through to the end, is a, an innocent person. He's the third of the seventh person I've taken wow. who should not be on death row. And he's stuck in the appeals courts. It just kills you. Ugh. I was so naive when I first got into this. I thought we had the best court system in the world. If they made a mistake in trial, they'd catch it on appeals. I didn't know anything. Yeah, it just seems like the appeals, they take a long time, and, and a lot of it is, uh, uh, you're not getting, you don't see much action. A lot of it's just lo- looking at stuff that's on the record and not really looking for evidence of innocence. Uh, having tracked seven of them, I'm sure you've seen all different types of things across all different parts of the world. Or it just sits, or it just sits in one of the judges' chambers just for months or years. Wow. I mean, Louisiana doesn't have a thing of, of putting their feet to the fire and say, by this time, you have to dispose of this case. So you could just sit there forever. So earlier, you spoke to the entire conference uh, about your your advocacy to uh, try to get rid of the death penalty in the United States. And uh, and you talked uh, about Louisiana and how they have the death penalty, but they're not really using it. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. And it sounds like this is one such case. Well, he's one among many of... We have the highest per capita exoneration rate in the nation. We've executed 28 people in Louisiana, 11 have had to be exonerated. Wow. Those are the lucky ones. Those are the lucky ones, Michael. Um, but so what we have going on now is we were just executing so many people and so quickly, like eight people in eight and a half weeks in the 80s. And I did put the story in Dead Man Walking about one of the guards because the people closest to the killing expect that, you know, they're going to bear the heaviest moral burden in terms of what gets to people to actually practice, be the ones then to take a person from the holding cell, strap them in, and then be there, participate in the killing of a human being who's rendered defenseless. So this, and this one of the, the people on death row, he used to be a supervisor and they moved him to the execution squad. And when he did talk to me about his experience, he said, sister, if I had just stayed as supervisor on death row, you know, I just supervised the getting of the trays, the dinner trays and all, and keep an order on the row, I could have done it and retired. But then they moved me to this execution squad. And, and his job, Mike, was it wasn't even to be the one to strap him and put him in the chair of the gurney. It was to just go after they had been killed, to go to their cell and collect their toothbrush and personal belongings to give to their family. And after five executions, he called me into his office and he just said, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to have to quit this job. 
I come home after these executions and I can't sleep. I can't eat. My wife knows not to talk to me. And because in my gut, I know I'm participating in the killing of somebody who's been rendered defenseless. And that's the essence, of course, of what makes torture as well. It's the defenselessness of the person who can't fight back. And he's the only one I met in the whole system in Louisiana from the governor on down who quit because of his conscience. And he just couldn't take it anymore because it got wow. to him. You got to tell these stories, see, to people because they go, yeah, justice was done. And and it's a secret ritual for the most part. There have been two court cases trying to make executions public, but they've both been defeated. They want it that way. Few chosen witnesses behind prison walls. Who sees this? Nobody sees this. But those of us who've been thrown into it and are witnesses, I mean, I feel strongly a moral imperative to take people into the experience. That's why I wrote the book, Dead Man Walking. I'm I'm really surprised that that's the uh, the only person from the governor on down that that you found in Louisiana that has had that type of experience. Well, when you think of people, Michael, that get into these systems. So here you're a young DA, and uh, and you get into the DA's office, and you have high ideals, and then the practices that are going on there. If you're like in Jefferson Parish in Louisiana and systematically all blacks are removed from the jury and the practices that actually go on, where are you working? I mean, that's true of any job, actually. You know, you have high ideas, you start out as a lawyer in this big corporation. And then, you know, it's just what actually goes on around you and you get caught up in it. Mm -hmm. And it's a big deal to break out of that current or that eddy in the river to break out and people just get caught in it, become part of it, I think. So how do we go about making this country shift away from the use of the death penalty? I know you talked about how deep-rooted it is during your talk, about how violence has been a thing that's been part of this country's past. What, what are three things you think that we can do to move away from the death penalty as a country? Yeah, well, first of all, you know what Virginia did uh, and what we have to do is get full-scale, full-throttle defense by people's side. And then the, they, most of the time, those they will not even come to trial that they're going to seek the death penalty because it's supposed to be an adversarial system of coming to truth at trial. But when prosecution really has, I mean, virtually no defense, no fight on the other side, it's going to bring out their weaknesses and make them do the wrong things they often do. But you got full throttle defense. You're going to think 50 times before you're going to go for the ultimate punishment and maybe lose. And that's why you never see rich people on death row. Doesn't mean that they don't do terrible crimes, but they have good defense by their side. And that prosecutor is going to be facing pretrial motions. I mean, with them on every step, getting that forensic evidence, getting independent testing done. So that's one thing we got to do. The other thing is that we just have to keep educating the public. Like right now, just two days ago, we introduced two repeal bills into Louisiana legislature. Now, we have been a red state. We have, I mean, I shudder when I think of what our legislators, our Congress people, how often they vote the wrong way. But you cannot underestimate people talking to people, people who know them, these legislators. And now just show them what's, 
We spent $200 million over the last 15 years to keep the death penalty system in place with one execution. So how much is it worth to you to keep this expensive, call it the machinery of death, in place to get one execution? Think how this money could be used. And then the other thing we really got to educate people on is about victims' families. And where we had a huge lesson about how the death penalty doesn't help victims' families was when New Jersey abolished the death penalty uh, in 2011. And at the legislative hearings, 62 murder victims' families testified. They had all had loved ones killed. And they testified and they said, don't kill for us. The death penalty re-victimizes us. First of all, our grief is made public because you're seeking the death penalty. We don't have a private place where we could go without the media at our door at every stage of the case, knocking on our door saying, hey, look, he got another hearing. Or what do you think? What do you think? How can we even grieve? How can we pull our family together and become whole again with the death penalty? And then we wait and wait and wait. And with the Supreme Court that we have in New Jersey, we don't know if we're ever going to get this. It's just a symbol that you're using, a political symbol. And it doesn't, it re-victimizes us. And their testimony was so strong. See, because that's the ace in the hole for a prosecutor to say, to look like they're doing something decent. We're doing it mm-hmm. for the victims' families, right? So that's, that's another big thing is to have victims' families testify you don't do this for us. And now we can actually make the argument before our legislators. Look, at it's not working. You're not really using it. And you're saying you're doing this for these victims' families? The average waiting time between a person sentenced to death in Louisiana and execution is 17 and a half years. So you're going to say to those victims' families, yeah, you wait 17 and a half years. And then I say this to audiences all the time, to bring them there. I just say, do you really think you lost a loved one to murder? You wait whatever the long time is, and then you get to sit on the front row and watch as the state kills the one who killed your loved one, and you watch that violence that's supposed to heal you or give you closure? How can it do that? You're watching violence. That's not going to heal you. Right. It's Bud Welch. He's one of the last stories in Death of Innocence. I end by telling uh, yeah, his story. His daughter, Julie, was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. And boy, I mean, the first part of his journey, he wanted to kill Timothy McVeigh with his bare hands. You know, that whole anger and just rage, which is so understandable because you're in shock. Daughter's killed, unspeakably terrible killing with 168 people a number of whom were children in the Murrah building when that bomb went off from Timothy McVeigh. But then he came to the thing of that the the anger was consuming him, that he was losing his life. And then just to finally reach a point where he said, even if I watched Timothy McVeigh die and watch on closed circuit television, which they were offering all of us, I'd come home afterwards and the chair in which Julie Marie sat would still be empty. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could see it, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. What a transformation to go yeah. from, from that to from A to B there. That's, that's wild. You know, some, there are, 
in California, for example, we uh, a proposition passed a few years ago where uh, the the counter argument to well it takes too long is let's speed up the process. The right. counter argument to well it costs so much money let's reduce the costs. Right. Right. Tell us what the problems are with those those ideas. Yeah, right. Well, that's what the so-called theory of the death penalty to begin with. Right. We're only going to get the worst of the worst. We're going to streamline it. We're not going to go for your, quote, ordinary murder. It's impossible from the beginning. The criteria is impossible. And then to set up a legal system where you're going to sort through all murders of what is it, about 20000 a year, and sort out all ordinary ones and only go for the worst of the worst going to have a legal system that you're going to set up in which you're going to be able to get to the truth in the cases and only pick those people to die without setting up an adequate defense system to go along with it because over 90% of people on death row are poor. And so there you got that combination. You're poor. Overwhelmingly, it's when you kill white people. Overwhelmingly, it is so racist that you can see from the race of the victim. Who's murder causes outrage or whose murders seem negligible. Oh, a black person killed another black person in the inner city. Who cares? I mean, so it was built in, the racism's built in, and then the classism also because poor people can't get the defense they need. And so what made us think, except hubris of the Supreme Court, that we'd be able to set this thing up and we'll be able to have a fair system and that it'll actually work. And the conservatives, I just wrote an article for uh, smirconish.com. I don't know if you've ever, I hadn't heard of him, but he's a conservative, one more conservative, turning away from the death penalty. He's mad as hell because there were like seven policemen that have been killed in Pennsylvania. And none of the people, starting from the 80s, that did the killing has actually been executed because it it's a rhetoric, it's a theory, and people run for political office on it, but the actual machinations of it don't work. You don't have a way of actually doing it. Yeah, and for you know us in the innocence movement, I hear that, oh, we're going to speed things up, we're going to move quicker, and that gives me a huge pause for concern because I we should all be worried we're going to we're going to execute the innocent. And on average of the 3000 wrongful convictions that have happened in the United States since 1989, I believe the average time it takes for exoneration is 16 and a half years. So if you tried 16 and a half years to get to exoneration from your conviction. So if you try to implement some sort of system where you execute in 10 years, for example, you're certainly going to catch people in there that are innocent because that that evidence of innocence has yet to be developed. And you know what? And you can talk in theory all you want about how you're going to speed this thing up, but finally it comes down to the county and the prosecutor and who's going to go for death and who doesn't. Right. I mean, that's finally how it really breaks down because if, in fact, you do not have a DA that goes for death, nobody's going to die. And you're not... And so it's got to be a political answer where politicians and DAs realize it's not in their best interest to seek death. And we we can see change happening in Louisiana. We had a terrible DA when I first got involved with the death penalty, Harry Connick Sr. Mm-hmm. His son, Harry Connick Jr., is one who plays nice music. And the father was going for death every chance he got this Catholic district attorney. 
And now, just two years ago, we elected as the district attorney, Jason Williams, who ran on a campaign as a DA and he was saying, I'm not sending anybody to death. And he won the election and he's now the DA. Wow. So that, that's a shift. You can tell that people are going, you can't see a, a negotiable or a difference in outcome anyway. You hear people, okay, you get a death sentence, then you go on death row and then you disappear. I mean, it's futile. During your speech at the conference, you, you talked about uh, the Catholic Church and, and the way the Church uh, has shifted its approach towards the death penalty. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. There was a devastating statistic in the 80s. So I woke up, first I woke up to poor people in New Orleans and moved out of the suburbs. And once you change the soil where you live, you know, what does Brian uh, Stevenson say? Proximity, proximity, proximity. Who are you with? Who are you? And I met the people, African-American people that had been our servants when I was growing up, Mike. I grew up in wow. the Jim Crow days. Had a servant's course, back of the house. Wow. My favorite, big two-story house. Daddy is a successful lawyer. So the change in consciousness had to do a lot with waking up First, a spiritual awakening that the gospel of Jesus is not simply being charitable to the few people around you and being sweet and nice, being a nice teacher, none, and don't hit kids with rules or whatever, and move out of charity to being there with the wounded and the hurting to work for justice. And I put myself in, and that soil worked at a place called Hope House, and that's what opened up. I got an invitation to be a pen pal to somebody on death row. Well. Wow. So there was a statistic in the mid-80s that showed that the more people went to church, the more they believed in the death penalty. Wow. So the way people interpret the crucifixion or execution of Jesus. So if your religious system or belief is built on this whole thing of a God who demands justice because the sense of divine justice has been offended, even to ask for the death of a son to be paid in ransom and to think that saves you from your sins, then you're going to be all for the death penalty. You're going to be all for it. And that kind of just crass kind of theology unthought through. And just recently, about three years ago, Wyoming was one vote short of repealing the death penalty and the senator who voted to keep the death penalty in place, saying if Jesus hadn't been executed by the Romans, we wouldn't be saved from our sins. So religion is really, really tricky when it comes to people being engaged with justice. And I'm a good example of that. Come a nun, prayerful, holy, um, charitable, but disconnected from the real social issues of the day and working for justice. And one of the things is that religion got to be so privatized. It's about personal relationship, me and my savior, and then I'll be saved, which does not root you in justice. So with Catholic Church, ongoing conversation, people like me waking up, other people in the Catholic Church beginning to go to prisons, beginning to visit death row, consciousness changes, dialogue. And when you have dialogue changing, then on all the moral issues we see in the Catholic Church that we grew, used to support slavery, unthinking, slavery, changed. How? Experiences of the people. 
Look what's happening to slaves. Look how cruel this is. People can't be property. Same thing with the death penalty. So the conversation kept happening. I did get to have a direct conversation with John, Pope John Paul II, very direct, where and I could say to him, Your Holiness, I meet a lot of Catholics who say they're pro-life, but they mean they're for innocent life. That if somebody commits a crime, they don't believe they have dignity. Can you help our church? We need to grow in this that to take a person, render them completely defenseless and take their life is against the dignity of the human person. So Pope John Paul got active on that, directly addressed it and paved the way for Pope Francis in August, 2018. For the first time, had in the teaching of the church that you cannot give the right to life over to a government to be able to take life. When they did, however, they decide they're going to set it up. You can't turn over the power of life over to governments to take the life of their fellow human beings. But now you got to get it to the people. That's just a documented change. Right. right. I mean, that, the, the fact that that happened in 2018, and I'm sure there's a lot of Catholics out there that are, are unaware of that. Uh, Most are not. They just had a recent poll, and a lot of them don't even know it changed. And then you get into the institutional weakness of, of a religious body. So where do most people get their education? They go to mass on Sunday. Where mm-hmm. do they hear the word of the gospel? Is from the priest. Only men can give the homilies in the Catholic church. I mean, that's a default that's in the church that we got to change eventually. You're never going to have a healthy church. And so they don't hear anything about the controversial social justice issues like the death penalty. They're, you know, they go to moral issues that are much more, you know, acceptable to people, unborn children or, or the like. But so it's us, the people, and that's the prophetic nature of the gospel of Jesus. Just people, ordinary people wake up, they see it and begin spreading the news to the others. That's what we do. You got me thinking, and and all of the sermons that I sat through as uh, as I was growing up, I never heard them talk about. I never heard our priests talk about the the death penalty. I also yeah. never had. I never heard anyone bring an expert in, and so maybe that's the future, right? Your sermon, and you bring it. You call an expert in to talk about the death penalty, and Sister Helen can get up there and tell everybody all of the things that they need to know. So yeah, I'm, I wouldn't go so much fun. Expert, I would just say what I am as a witness because uh-huh. I've been there and I've seen it. And uh, yeah, but that's what happens. So that's the way we have any social change. Had the civil rights movement, how did it happen? I mean, people have direct experiences. And uh, and then you go to your, you know, the people you love, the people you know in your community, and you share that. I mean, look at the work y'all are doing with your Innocence Project. I mean, you get in there and you get into people's cases. I mean, you even, how many miles did you walk to deliver those petitions? 712. <laughs> Who was counting? That impressed me. <laughs> At the Capitol the other day, Baton Rouge, to introduce the legislation to repeal the death penalty. It was the first time I'd just driven up to the Capitol. Before then, we had walked from New Orleans to the Capitol to start calling attention. This was in the 80s. Wow. Had everybody on that highway giving us a finger. Oh, <laughs> the first one's against the death penalty. What? You margin for that? So it's nice to kind of drive up to the Capitol and just stand there without having to walk there. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. No, I can relate. We went back for a rally and drove as well. And I was like, I can't believe we walked all this way. What were We were crazy. Well, but you know what? It's You do a sacrificial action to call attention. You could hardly, in the 80s, say, we'd like to call a press conference. We're mm-hmm. against that film. Do you want to tell you why nobody would come? Right. Well, one last question for you, and it's a simple one. What's next for you? Continuing what we're doing. Keep. I'm reaching out a lot to young people. With this Zoom thing, like I, you know, you can just reach a lot of people and getting people to read the book because reading is a very powerful thing because you're quiet, you're not debating, and and your imagination is at work and you can go into all the scenes and you got to bring people through it. I had a wonderful editor that helped me shape Dead Man Walking or you never would have heard of it. Jason Epstein and Random House. And when he looked at the first draft of Dead Man Walking, he said, hell, nobody's going to read your book. You wait far too long to bring him into the crime. This man, the first one that I took on death row, he and his brother in cold blood killed two teenage kids and left their bodies in this sugarcane field. And he said, if you don't deal with the horror of the crime they did, in the first 10 pages of this book, nobody's going to read your book because they're going to think you can't face that part. You want to just get into the Jesus thing. Jesus said, forgive. They're going to expect every religious platitude. And you got to stand there before the bodies of those dead kids and the suffering of those parents. And your reader has to know you feel the outrage of that too. And then step by step by step, then you take them into that execution chamber. And let them, as you discover the system all along the way, they learn with you. And I found out, Mike, that can be a gift. Because I didn't write Dead Man Walking as an expert. Let me tell you all about the death penalty. Just come with me on this journey. And they're going, as I mentioned at the Innocence Conference, Tim Robbins, while he was doing the movie, was saying the nuns in over our head. I found out there's a benefit when people go to read a book. They're not going to fight you as an expert because they say, look, the nun doesn't know what she's doing. Let's see what happens to her. And kind of read it for that reason, too. And so you can take people with you then on the journey. Love it. That's great. Well, we've reached the end of the road for this episode. I want to thank Sister Helen for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.